hey, Dan, I'm being forced to do what I can rather than what I love. Have you ever felt like that? That, yeah, you know what you love, but how are you going to make that work to make your life work? Are you forced to just do what you have the ability to do rather than what you love? Hey, here's some other questions we're going to be looking at today. I prepared for an event that has now been canceled. Did I just waste my time? Can an individual with a disc personality type of SI be a good entrepreneur? My oldest son is interested in real estate, but I'm hesitant to encourage him because of my own experience. Is it wise to go into debt to receive mentoring, coaching on how to better leverage and start your business? My day job is soul crushing, but provides 80% of my income. My side job is life giving, but provides only 20% of my income. And then if we got time, we're going to go into this one. I've been working in the healthcare industry for over 25 years as a physician. Every day I find myself getting more tired of my current work in the medical industry. Stick around. We're going to dive into these and more. Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, as you can tell, we're going to be taking care of business every day right here. These questions are just common questions. Well, they're never common if it deals with you, the individual, but uh, they're common questions in terms of there's probably other people experiencing exactly what you're feeling. That's the way that it typically works. Even though you feel like, wow, you're one in a million in terms of what you're having to go through, there's probably 40 people listening who are saying, wow, that's me. So we're going to go through these, discuss them together in ways that we hopefully can all grow and achieve higher levels of success in doing so. Quotation today comes from Peter Drucker, the old management guru. Lived a long life, and in his very last years, had people coming to his house to keep learning from the wisdom that he had. But he said, management is doing things right. Leadership is doing the right things. Now, you can tell from the way I framed some of the questions we're going to be looking at already, people are confronted with that. You know, do I just do things right or do I do the right things? So we're going to look at ways you can do the right things, the ways that you could do things that move you toward the life you love, not just the work that you have the ability to do. Well, hey, I got a picture sent to me, texted to me yesterday, and it was the entrance to the property that we used to own in Tennessee. Now, we sold that earlier this year, but many of you were there. We had one side of the property was, we, we had an old barn on there that we called the sanctuary. And that was a special place for a lot of people. Did a lot of transformation of lives there. And on that property, you know, we had nature trails. People could walk. And on that trail, there were lots of flowers and you'd see often see you know, deer and rabbits and other kind of wildlife, maybe a raccoon or two. And there was a big mulberry tree. Lots of people ate mulberries right off that tree, an experience they probably had never done before. We had eagles 
stationary eagles. You know, one was carved out of a cedar tree, a magnificent eagle as you approached the property. Then we also had Scott Stearman, internationally known sculptor, come and spend some time with us there and on the property, sculpt a bronze eagle that then sat magnificently on a big boulder. People would come and look at that. Joanna and I had created multiple landscaping areas with water. We had one area, I had put an old truck, a 1939 Plymouth truck, backed it in just just for the look. It was an art piece, and it had flowers around it. Had an auga horn in there where I had a marine battery in it to operate the auga horn. And um, little kids could go up and step up on the running board, reach in and push the red button, and go, ooga. Well, a lot of things, and people would come back there, not only when we had events, but a lot of other times as well. It was a sanctuary. It was a place of peace. We wanted people to feel welcome to come back and just experience a sense of peace in being there. Well, I got a picture sent to me, and the entrance now has a gate across it. It has a fence all across the front of the property and a locked gate where you now need a security code. Now, I, you know, I mean, we know the people who bought it. They're wonderful people, but it's clear they view that property differently than we did. It just, uh, just, just a note. I don't have any big point to make about it, but it just, uh, Joanna and I have always seen where we live as a sanctuary, as a safe place for others. We welcome people in readily. We've got guests, I think, the next three nights here at our home in Florida now. Well, the, our property is different, but our the way we treat our property and the way we see it as being an open place for others has not changed. So things change. We don't all see life in the same way. And uh, just kind of struck me when I saw the picture that there is now a gate blocking the entrance to what we call the sanctuary. Well, time moves on. It's not our property. So we're going to take where we are and do what we're used to doing. Well, I got a note about a job. Now, this is an old job that is not in existence anymore. And I chuckled when I saw it because it's called a knocker-upper. Now, no, this is nothing profane or anything here. That was the real title of a job, knocker-upper. Now, this is back before alarm clocks were invented. So back in the 1900s, well, back in 1900, really, is when this kind of came into being from 1900 to 1941. This was a real profession. Started during the Industrial Revolution when alarm clocks were neither cheap nor reliable. (laughs) You know, I mean, today people, you know, roll out of bed, they have their phone or their alarm clock or whatever they have. There's all kinds of ways to be awakened. But back in early times, we didn't have those conveniences. And so there was a human alarm clock known as a knocker-upper who would go down the streets and wake paying customers in time for work. Now, one of those was Mary Smith. She's very well known. You can look this up. She was a pea shooter. So a lot of people slept on the second floor. She had a pea shooter that she'd bang peas off your window until you came to the window and acknowledged that you were awake. Now, for that, she charged sixpence. I mean, that's worth essentially six pennies, six cents a week that she got. And her nearest competition, it says, was an old man three miles away who did the same job using a fishing rod to tap on upstairs windows. 
We've had a whole lot of jobs that have come and gone. There's a whole lot of things that are not in use anymore. I mean, you think about a blacksmith. Now, there still is that, but certainly not as common as when people used horses as their primary means of transportation. Things, things change. I had a gentleman come to me some years ago, and his real expertise was in repairing eight-track players. I mean, he had really highly specialized skill in doing that. Well, what what is the uh, what's the need for that? These days, now we can go through a whole lot of other things as well. But I thought it was just interesting. And, of course, the, the term has been co-opted to mean something else that we certainly don't need to use. But it was a knocker-upper. That was a real position back in early days. Well, if you get a question you want to send in here, submit. we got some great ones to go through today, as always. But if you got a question, just go to 48days.com slash askdan, and you can leave your question there. Now, here, I've got an audio question here. I want to just play this. It's short. Tom did a great job of just being concise in this. So I want to play it, and then we'll discuss it. Dan, I have a quick question for you regarding the Strangest Secret 30-Day Challenge. I began with the goal to create a Power Skills Boot Camp for an upcoming event. Midway through the month, the organizers canceled this event for an upcoming conference due to low ticket sales. Up to that point, I was on target to complete the coursework. I listened to the recording every day for 30 days. Two questions for you. Would you consider this a success or a failure? Perhaps more importantly, what would you do next? I was considering using this material to create an online course or perhaps a book. Or I could just start marketing the boot camp as a full-day training. Look forward to hearing your response, Dan. Thanks, and have a wonderful day. Tom Hendricks. Well, Tom, I think you answered your question as you discussed it there. Yes, I would say this is a success, success, and I'll tell you why. You never lose the effort you put into the development of that course. I mean, the growth and understanding you got from doing that can now never be taken away. And as you know from The Strangest Secret – Earl Nightingale defines success as the progressive realization of a worthy goal. You can define that. You know this course has value. You know people need to hear this. So you can complete the development and propose to 10 other conferences that are going to be coming up in 2023. You can complete the course and just market it yourself, as you described. You can identify the perfect company to use it. Um, let's say that it's a company with more than 250 employees with a designated sales team. You can then make a list of 70 to 80 companies that could use that material, either presented by you or by purchasing a license to use it. That's exactly what I did years ago when I was first using the disk profiles. I would I made a list of 70 to 80 companies. I reached out to them repeatedly and then had doors open where then I worked with companies like General Electric and Deutsche Bank and National Federation of Independent Business where we did all the um, prison wardens in the state of Tennessee, put them through the disc. I'd do it in groups of 20. And my fee was $3,500 for a three-hour workshop. Now, you say you could present this as a full-day training. I did two of those workshops back-to-back in one day for Deutsche Bank, and I did that month after month after month. They, at the time, had 20,000 employees, so we were putting these mid-level managers through that process. And rather than have it be $3,500 in the morning, $3,500 in the afternoon, I told them that I'll stay around for lunch as well. And if there were any key leaders they wanted me to meet with, discuss 
particular challenges, I'd be happy to do that. We just make it $8,000 a day. And their question was, how soon can you start? And so, yes, I would consider this a major success to have something like this that you're developing. And again, remember, success is a progressive realization of a worthy goal. If you go to, I mean, how many people do you know? I certainly know a whole lot. I talked to a gentleman yesterday who went to law school. He got his law degree at Notre Dame. He's not acting as an attorney. He's an entrepreneur. He invests in businesses. He's far surpassed probably what he would have earned as an attorney, and he's certainly working in a more positive environment than what he realized the legal field was going to be. Does that negate the value of having gone to Notre Dame to get his law degree? No, not at all. I'm sure he has a unique perspective that he can bring to the table as he's looking at businesses, how to set them up, how to structure their organization, and all that. So no, you don't lose that. Just because your initial goal disappeared, you just divert Pivot a little bit if you need to, and go on from there. A great question, Tom. Phil says, can an individual with a disc personality type of SI be a good entrepreneur? Now, the implication here is that you need to be a high D. There's somebody who's hard-charging, aggressive, opinionated, strong personality. No, you can be extremely successful as an SI. SI meaning somebody who's a good listener, they're compassionate, you know, loyal, those kind of skills. You know. So certainly, and I can give you lots of examples, but I thought of, as I looked at this question, I also thought of, Phil, the book, Good to Great, you know, Jim Collins, wonderful book. He described five levels of leadership, five, with level five being the absolute ultimate. These were people who were amazing at leading, at building organizations, leading organizations. Level five. Now, there are a lot of people who have just the skills, you know, to lead, to be a manager or whatever. But level five leaders, he says, display a powerful mixture of personal humility and indomitable will. Their ambition is first and foremost for the cause, for the organization and its purpose, not themselves. They tend to be self-effacing, quiet, reserved, and even shy. Now, there you go. We just described, you know, that SI personality. I mean, the level five refers to the highest level capabilities that they identify during their research. Leaders at the other four levels in the hierarchy can produce high success, high degrees of success, but not enough to elevate companies from mediocrity to sustained excellence. Those were level five leaders. Now, when we look at it, what are the SI characteristics then? What are the characteristics of being high SI on the DISC model? They show understanding toward other people, help and support other people in their goals, adapt to difficult situations, reduce conflict with others. Those are exactly the characteristics that they identified as being the highest level of leadership. Now, we have a lot of examples in our 48 Days community, people like you know, Mark Ross, Came out of the executive position. Now he's an independent coach. Can he be a good entrepreneur? People absolutely love Mark. His coaching that he does and how he uses art to complement that. People that he coach get a, an art piece from him as well that kind of embodies what happened in their transformation. People like Marianne Renner. I mean, we could go on with people who are really effective leaders, effective entrepreneurs. In my mastermind, I mean, we've got a lot of people who are not the strong D personalities, 
their S and I personalities. Well, hope that helps convince you if you if you are take comfort in that. And incidentally, you can be any personality style and be effective as an entrepreneur. You can be a high C, somebody who's really behind the scenes and likes a lot of data analysis. You just choose a business that fits you. I mean, that's the real key. You can choose and build a business that fits your personality style. I certainly have done that in what I've done be just by you know, knowing myself well. I built a business around what I know my strengths and my weaknesses are. John says, Dan, my oldest son is interested in real estate because this is what I do. My son is a good worker, sees the value in real estate investments. This is what I've done over the years. I did it because it's the best a person can do to become wealthy. So today I have $3 million in real estate, but I hate the physical part of it. I've been working with my sons, but it's killing me and I just don't like it. The construction industry is the worst for moral and Christian principles, so I don't want to throw my sons out to the wolves, but I'm not mentally and physically wanting to do it. It's not the work I love. What are your thoughts and insights or an approach I can take to make it work? Well, John, you're right. I mean, real estate is part of the wealth path for nearly every super successful individual you could possibly come up with. So it does give you leverage like really very few other things are going to give you. Unless you develop a software program you know that you can license, there are a few things that are going to give you the upside potential and leverage of real estate. That being said, there's a whole lot of ways to be involved in real estate. You can do flips where you buy and then you deal with subcontractors, you know, who are going to do all the work and then you put it back on the market again and hopefully make a big margin on that. You can buy properties that are already in really great shape. I mean, Kent Julian does that, buys at least a house every year, a nice family home. Um, They just, then they rent it out to long-term renters where the renters are paying down the mortgage. Ultimately, you'll have paid for properties. It's a very different kind of approach. I mean, you can decide that you're just going to do or your sons can decide they're just going to do commercial real estate, which is a different kind of thing. But there's so many ways. I mean, you, you can just be an investor where somebody else is actually doing all the work. You can have a property manager, so you don't have to deal with the renters or the subs that are doing repairs. There's a lot of ways to approach it. So I would be very uh, gracious with your sons in what they want to do, but go through and identify 15 different ways you could be involved in real estate. 15 different ways that they could scratch that itch and maybe avoid some of the things that have been causing you challenges or things that you particularly don't like. But I would say even for you, you certainly have the opportunity to to pivot and make your investments in ways that remove these sore spots for you. Yeah, I'm I'm a big believer in real estate. Real estate has served me well and a whole lot of other people I know as well. And if they are interested in that, you certainly don't want to steer them away from where their interest is and force them into just doing something else just because it seems to be safer. Okay, here we've got, let's say, Bob says, is it wise to go into debt to receive mentoring or coaching on how to better leverage and start your business. He says, last year was devastating for me, both financially and personally. I experienced a great deal of loss in every area of my life. 
I'm just now climbing back up out of that. I don't have the money in the bank to pay for the mentoring coaching up front. Debt is never a good thing. The Bible talks about the debtor being a slave to the lender. And we should owe no man anything but to love him. Maybe I've answered my own question. Just need some clarification. Thank you, Bob. Well, let me ask you this, Bob. Is it wise to go to dental school so you can then make $350,000 a year? Is it wise, like we were just talking, to purchase a rental house? So hopefully you can build your wealth slowly over the time. Now, the reason I mentioned those is because you're talking about making some kind of investment in advance so that you can then have higher levels of success moving forward. Is it wise to become a doctor in physical therapy, but come out of school with $180,000 in student loan debt as a young guy I know just did? But these are all examples of investing in your personal and growth and training so you can then reap the rewards. So is it ever advisable to invest $5,000 in a coaching program to help you leverage the startup of your business? I mean, I think that's a pretty solid investment if you really believe in the business and you can have one session with a coach or a mentor and identify whether your, your idea is a solid idea. But personally, I mean, every time I want to grow in an area of my life, I find a coach or mentor. Everything, every area of my life. If it's when I started blogging years ago, I found the very best person I could find as a coach. When I started podcasting, I got a coach. I wanted to know how to speak in front of people. I went through the Dale Carnegie program and then got a a coach to help me in two different areas. I got a a coach to help me leverage my speaking opportunities. And I also had a speech coach who helped me physically control my voice and know how to speak for long periods of time. I mean, I've always looked for coaches. So I I think this is a a two-part answer because uh, you can also get access to amazing coaching at very little cost. So in as much as you know, we, we have people who don't think anything about you know, going to school and accumulating $200,000 in debt because they hope that that's going to lead to an increased opportunity for income generation. And we're talking here, you know, what if you invested $2,500 in a coaching program that would shorten your learning curve about starting this business? You know, work with somebody like my business partner, Rich Allen, who came out of a incredible business and was essentially retired at 50 years old because he had done so well in the businesses that he ran. He is not a business coach. He'll take you through using the framework of a bicycle, going through the components of a business that need to be in place. I mean, what if you spent two hours with him and went through that and saw some real red flags and the way you were thinking about doing it and you avoided those? I think it'd be a pretty good investment. Now, that being said, you can also, again, access coaching at very little cost. You can go to your local small business administration office. They have classes. They have a Thrive program that you can get in. They have SCORE, S-C-U-R-E, a Service Corps of Retired Executives, where there are people who were successful in business who now volunteer to sit down with people who are starting businesses and offer their services for free. You can barter. Whatever it is you're wanting to do in business, you may be able to barter that for the coaching that you need. You can access Masterclass. I mean, it's something I highly recommend. We provide it for a lot of people. 
and you can jump on there and you can, you want to build a business? I mean, there's a course by Richard Branson. Wow. He talks about how to start a business and you just watch that. I mean, you access that for like 15 bucks a month and get your coaching there. You can watch Sarah Blakely talk about building, you know, the business that she has. So you can go through tons of information that the real question is, will you take action on your own? Will you do the necessary action on your own? That's the real question. That's why I get coaching, not only for the knowledge, but to also keep me accountable. And I talked, I think it was last week, I said that, you know, I go to a spin class twice a week. I mean, why would I, at my age, I got a beautiful bike, I can go on a bike ride anytime I want to, but I go to spin class twice a week where I get on a bike in a room with, you know, several other people, young gal up front, barking orders at us, you know, to spin. It's because I know I'll go faster, quicker, harder in that group than I would do on my own. Easy just to back off if I'm on my own. But if I have a coach, somebody working with me, it's going to push me to go faster, quicker, longer. I would encourage you to, to do the same. Well, hey, just another reminder here. Got these great questions. I consider it an honor every week to unpack these together with you. I'll send a gift out to anybody whose question I use. You can send your questions in. Just go to 48days.com slash askdan, and you can either leave an audio message like Tom did there, or you can write it out. Either way is fine. If I use your question, we'll send you an autographed copy of 48 Days to the Work You Love. Well, Tim says, I'm an entrepreneur at heart, and after checking out Peak Week, I'm about to join a 48 Days Eagles group to help that dream become reality. I'm excited. Incidentally, we just... Close the doors again um, temporarily for our Eagles community, but had a whole bunch of new people who had been waiting to come in. We're excited about getting those people integrated, started in the businesses they're developing. I mean, that's what we attract. I mean, this is for people who have entrepreneurial ideas. And so we got a whole bunch of new people coming in and we're excited about working with them. So um, so t- Tim says, yeah, he just joined a 48 Days Eagles group. I'm writing to ask your advice. I work a day job as an employee and a side job as a 1099. My day job is soul crushing, but provides 80% of my income. My side job is life giving, but provides 20% of my income. The challenge, I'm spread so thin that it's taking a toll on my family. In an effort to recoup time while still being able to put food on the table, I recently gave notice to the side job. The pot thickens. The side job is a research assistant right-hand man role to a prominent and respected Christian thinker author. His website has a large reach, reaching over a million unique hits every month from virtually every country on earth. Given my skills, which are fairly unusual, and the fact that I'm working with such a well-known trusted figure and that I enjoy what I do with him, I can't help but think this path might hold a future business opportunity somewhere. I proposed coming aboard full-time the other day, but the ministry just can't afford what I need to make. We're almost paycheck to paycheck, and so I can't afford to drop my day job yet. It feels like quitting the side work to stay at the job is moving in the wrong direction, but I see no other choice. What do I do? Is there a better option I'm overlooking? Thanks. Well, Tim, yeah, I, I, I really locked in on your last Sentence there, it feels like quitting the side work to stay at the day job is moving in the wrong direction, but I see no other choice. Yeah, there's probably other choices. Last week, I received an email from a a guy who has a new business. I happen to be on his advisory board. He asked if he should do option one or option two. 
I called him and said, I like option three, neither of which he had suggested. He laughed and said, well, I never thought of that. So you could propose, I mean, here's some things that you could do. And I really, yeah, I'm really concerned about this moving away from what it is you love and just hanging on to what you don't enjoy because it seems to be more responsible and somehow is providing income from you. Look at what it is that you're doing that you really do enjoy. I mean, you could propose doing something dramatically bigger for this thought leader you're referring to. You know, I don't know what you, what your skills are, but what if you offered to write his next two books? Ken Abraham's a friend of mine, but he's a ghostwriter for people like Joel Osteen, Chuck Norris, Bill Gaither. These are all people he's written books for, Buzz Aldrin, Vestal Goodman, and many more. His standard fee, quarter of a million dollars, $250,000. Now, you know, he usually has multiple projects going at any given time. So you can kind of figure out what his year looks like. Now, you say your job is as a research assistant right-hand man to a prominent and respected thought leader. What if you identified 10 other high-profile thought leaders and offered similar services to them? I mean, then you'd have that economy of scale so that if, Christianity Today or Relevant or World Magazine were looking for a particular article. You could select just the perfect fit from the five or six people that you're working for providing those services for. And you could develop a course on how to provide the services you're providing now. I would lean into what it is you're doing that you really that you say you enjoy. And don't just ask them to pay you more for that. Be creative in coming up with what you could offer that would be so dramatically more value than what it is you're doing now that it would be stupid for them to say, no, just create your own opportunity. You know, see, achievement is not your challenge. I want you to really hear this. I want you to really just, golly, I'm going to repeat this. Achievement, Tim, is not your challenge. Alignment is. Just because you have the ability to do something is not enough reason to continue doing that. What you have the ability to do is not always what's important. I mean, you have a lot of things that you can do. So the central question shifts from how do I achieve more to how would I like to live? How do I want to live my life? That's the question. I mean, that's why in working with dentists, and physicians, and attorneys, and pastors, and engineers, and accountants. They all have proven their ability to do what they're doing, some of them extremely well. Having the ability is not enough. As I talk about in 48 Days to the Work You Love, in its original version, and in its 20th anniversary edition that's out now, it's still look at your skills and abilities, but then we have to look also at your personality tendencies. We have to look at your values, dreams, and passions. Having the ability is not enough reason to continue doing something. Look at how do I want to live my life? All right, I'm going to grab one more. Um, Well, we're just going to call this gentleman Bruce. I've been working in the healthcare industry for over 25 years as a physician. Every day I find myself getting more tired of my current work in the medical industry. I have a desire to pursue my life passion, which is writing but I'm having a hard time finding 15 hours in my work week to dedicate to that because of my current schedule. Will any amount of hours per week, for example, eight to 10 hours, get me the startup I need? 
My work pays very well, and the fear of having a significant decline in pay before my writing becomes profitable is causing me to hit pause whenever I've tried to start. Lastly, it's been hard to get my spouse to see what I'm seeing. What advice do you have for me to overcome these obstacles and launch out into my dream? Wow. Oh, I feel your pain in this note. And, and th- this is a realistic tension between wanting to support your dream and wanting to be able to pay the bills. I, mean, I often talk about that three-legged stool being that blend of passion, talent, and money. If any of the three are missing, the stool will fall over. So if, you're, if the passion and talent are not creating money, then the work is just a hobby. Something has to be added. But you can go through the others as well. If you are making money, but there's no passion there, you're going to burn out. It's just inevitable. Now, as for writers, now we're going to talk about here, this is not a either or situation. This is going to be a both and situation. I'm not going to recommend you walk away from your 25 years as a physician. I assume that does provide extraordinary income. And I think you can do both. Now, you hear me talk about, you know, what I like to do is, is have people who start their side business and work that until it's generating 50% of their regular income. If it gets to 50% of your regular income, then I think it's clear that if you devoted all your time to it, you could make a clear transition. Now, let's assume that you're, let's just say that you're making $300,000 as a physician. So that means you'd have to get to $150,000 as a writer. That would put you like in the top 1% of writers in the world. I mean, there's no question. Writing just in and of itself is not typically a big income generator. Now, I saw that when I was coming into writing, writing being the primary thing that I most enjoy. And I said, well, I want to write, but I don't want to You'll be in the 95% who never make more than $40,000 a year. So I said, I'm going to do things that most writers don't. So yeah, we've developed around my writing, you know, live events, other ancillary products, online community, mastermind, speaking, coaching, all those things. And you could do that if you have an area of writing. Now, if you're writing fiction, you know, you're probably not going to have that leverage. But if you're writing something in the personal development, nonfiction arena, you can certainly leverage that in a lot of creative ways. And you certainly have the ability to do that as, as a doc already. But let, let's just go back to this immediate process. T.S. Eliot was a British essayist. He was a publisher, literary, social critic, one of the 20th century's major poets. He won both the Nobel Prize in Literature and the Order of Merit in 1948. As a young, ambitious writer in his 20s, he wrote it, reviews and essays and delivered a lecture series. It was a devouring workload that left him little time for his real passion of writing poetry, and he barely generated enough money for a meager existence. At age 29, he got a real job. He took a job at Lloyd's Bank in London, where he worked for the next eight years. Two days after starting there, he wrote his mother, I'm now earning two pounds, 10 shillings a week for sitting in an office from nine to five with an hour for lunch and tea served in the office. The pressure to pay the rent and buy groceries was gone. He used his lunch hour to discuss literary projects with his friends. In the evening, he had leisure time to work in his poetry and his fame began to grow. Now, did he then leave 
you know, for the freedom of being an entrepreneur, being a full-time writer, full-time poet with no restraints in his time? No. After eight years at Lloyd's, he accepted an editorial position at the publishing firm Faber and Geyer, where he stayed for the rest of his career. Somebody that, you know, he won, won the Nobel Prize, T.S. Eliot, but he always had a regular career. Elizabeth Gilbert talks about that in The Big Magic, the fact that so many people move into their passion area too quickly and they kill it because they force it to be their only source of income. Anthony Trollope demanded of himself that he write 3,000 words every morning before going off to his job at the Postal Service, a position he kept for 33 years during the writing of more than 24 books. So we tend to see creative skills as all or nothing, burn the bridges, make it work, but sometimes forcing your art to be your only source of income kills the very creativity you wish to increase. I mean, you can write from your perspective as a doctor, from the things you experience, from the people interactions that you see. I mean, that may be the very source of the best writing you can do rather than pulling yourself out of that. So, do I want you to write? Yeah, absolutely. But I want you to lean into that. But I don't think you need to sabotage what you're doing. And I do think it's going to be a challenge to have your writing be your only source of income at any point. Now, you're welcome to look at the model that we have at 48 Days, all the things that we do. But I anticipate, I project zero income from my books directly. Zero income is what I project year after year. I've done that for a long, long time. This last year, now again, I, I mentioned the, the multiple things that we do around my writing. And those, you know, some of those work very well, thank goodness. Last year, when you look at the royalties I got from my books, royalties, advances, everything coming directly from the sales of my book, it comprised less than 3% of my income. And yet I am recognized as a writer, as an author, New York Times bestseller, all those fun accolades, less than 3% of my income comes from my books. The rest comes from leveraging the message in other ways. Well, lead into that. My goodness, I love the fact that you want to do that. Again, don't scare your wife by thinking that you're going to quit practicing as a doctor, but find ways to start leaning into that where you can do that. And you, you can devote, you know, I mean, if it's, it's, if it's challenging your schedule to spend 15 hours a week, spend four but I think if you really find that you enjoy it, if you really find creative outlets for that, you'll, you'll find even more time that you can dedicate to that. But then your mind will always be accumulating content. I mean, I can't go for a walk in the morning without coming back with a little pad full of notes about things that just prompted my thinking, things I saw, people I interacted with, animals that I saw, trees, flowers, lots of things stimulate my thinking for things that I can then write about. It's that reticular activator. Once you get your mind set toward that, you start seeing things that will feed into it and allow you to grow in that area. Well, thanks for your wonderful questions. My goodness. Again, you can go to 48days.com slash askdan and leave your questions there. But thanks for listening. As always, thanks for sending in your questions, being open to growing and being a powerful force for making the world a better place. You know, we hear so much about things that are going on right now. And if you're watching too much news, you're hearing about a lot of things that are negative. 
wow, that's not the perspective I have. You know, I like to see things where we ask, what does this make possible? Even if it seems to be a negative thing, what does this make possible? I'm anticipating the last quarter of this year coming up very quickly now. I tend to think in 25-year plans, and that's 100 quarters. So every quarter, I'm clear on what it is we want to accomplish. I've got some interesting things I'm going to be adding. Matter of fact, I'm planning on adding a second podcast. Not just like this, not just answering questions, but taking one of those old principles from those masters of achievement and just doing a short breakdown on that. Something we can really hang on to that'll help motivate us to move move forward. But So... Share this episode with three of your friends who are also committed to personal growth. Be a person who encourages others, who is seen as as somebody who provides hope even when things appear to be challenging. There's always things that are going to be challenging. Nobody is immune from that. They're going to be there, but stay committed to your belief that we can, without a shadow of a doubt, find or create work and a life that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable.